What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everybody. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I am so excited to be here in the Breakline Arena with Alicia Thomas. Alicia, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here and how everything just happened. Line, Bethany, you guys are some of my favorite people. So I'm so excited to be here. Well, I love having you here. And I feel like the next hour that we have is just a conversation between two friends. And I'm excited to share more about you and more about your story with our community. Will you tell us about yourself? Yeah, well, I I currently work at Medallia. I am the global diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging community manager. That is a mouthful. And so mm-hmm. I just say DI community manager. And I feel so lucky to work in a space that I'm really, really passionate about with the support of my team, my manager, my company, but that hasn't always been the case. I've had a interesting path of getting here. I have a master's degree in journalism. After that, I didn't know what I wanted to do with that. I mean, imagine coming out of grad school in 2011 when everything was headed, you know, to online content and everything was changing around the time. And I guess I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't feel passionate about where I was headed. And I was like, all I know is I want to do something that brings me joy and that I feel like I'm making an impact at. And so I would go into interviews and people would be like, why do you want to work here? Or what's your five-year goals? And I would literally be like, I don't know what my five-year goal is, but I know (laughs) I want to be happy and doing work that I enjoy. So I went from you know, my master's degree and interviewing or not interviewing, interning at magazines to then I got dropped into the tech world through a contract job, just looking at landing pages and search pages, really, it was just a bunch of like tests. And I was like, I hate this. Like, I'm not talking to nobody. I'm literally just on the computer all day running tests to help the search results page. And I ended up at a startup, which was terrible for me because I found myself being the only in the space. Mm -hmm. But at this company, everyone was Chinese and I was the only Black person and Black woman at the company. And that was difficult because I was intentionally like left out of meetings because they Mm -hmm. said they were only going to speak in Mandarin. And I was like, well, I'm a key component, a key person and a key asset to this startup. And so it sucks being left out. Literally, I would be outside while everyone else was in the conference room. So I was only there for a very short period of time to say that this wasn't the best place for me. I then found a role as a diversity sourcer. And that's what entered me into the world of Hmm. diversity and inclusion. And I was just like, oh, okay this is where I need to be. I had no idea that diversity inclusion was even a thing, an area that we can work on. But I mean, that was back in 
shoot, 2017, 2018. So I think that's when DEI was really starting at the tech or in the tech industry as well. A lot of people hadn't defined it yet. So I was diversity sourcer and I still realized this isn't what I want to be doing in terms of I'm just sitting on the computer looking for people. I'm not interacting. I'm not engaging. I'm not having the true impact that I want to have. And then I ended up at another startup. I ended up, (laughs) there's a lot to say, but I ended up at another startup where I found myself being the only in a space and really trying to carve out a position for myself, but it was so loose and there wasn't much direction in terms of leadership. And again, I faced a lot of microaggressions and it was one of the hardest, one of the hardest journeys of my career was in that moment. But at the same time, I wouldn't trade it for anything because that's where I just took initiative on myself to kind of create a world of talent, of community management. And I was like, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. I want to have impact on the communities that represent underrepresented groups. I want to create a safe space. I want to have equitable and belonging space at these companies because I never want anyone to go through what I've gone through in my career or out in the world. And so then I found myself at Medallia speaking to Lauren Jackman, the amazing Lauren Jackman, who is our SVP. And I got a call from Lauren like a month later and through our conversation, not only did she get another headcount, but she was like the other headcount. I'm calling it the community manager, and it was based off of our conversation. And so that's how I ended up at Medallia. And I am able to really work in my joy, in my passion, and not only bring a sense of belonging at Medallia, but you know, my goal is to affect the tech industry as a whole. So I know that was a really short response to your question of who am I and what's my story. So <laughs> yeah, that's ultimately my story that's got me here today. So there's so much in your response that I want to unpack. You pushed past some really, really hard phases as you were mm-hmm. transitioning between those various roles and companies you talked about microaggressions. You talked about being intentionally isolated and sort of sidelined from important conversations where mm-hmm. you were actually playing a core role. And having to just be gritty and mm-hmm. push past it and persevere until you found this fantastic opportunity and you described working in your joy. And you and I are both fans of Lauren Jackman and I just love her. And I love the fact that you two have teamed up because you're both phenomenal. But one of the things that I was thinking about was this phrase that you use a lot and you've used it publicly for years, which is protect your joy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk to us about You know, as you were moving between these places and spaces, some of which felt really isolating for you or unfriendly to you, how did you protect your joy? Or was it the fact that you had to push past that Uh experience that you realized protecting your joy was Mm -hmm. crucial? It was that second part. A lot of my early career and up until this last place that I worked at, I found myself 
getting to a place where I was very unhappy or, you know, one thing about me, and I I think you know this, Bethany, I'm very transparent. So I'm going to be transparent here. I get anxiety. I get really bad anxiety that sometimes might turn into a depression. And so in my personal life, learning how to manage that and to Mm -hmm. actually you know, flip it on the other side. And it's like, now I'm at the place, you know, I'm 33. I do a lot of self-work on myself. Mm -hmm. I check in with myself all the time. Do I still get anxiety? Absolutely. Does it affect my, you know, my mental happiness and emotional state? Maybe every so often, but definitely not in the same way that it used to. And it's, Because I did the work to really learn about myself and grow and identify the things that bring me joy. Mm -hmm. And so working through and going through a lot of the things that I went through, not just in my career, but just in life in general, I realized I have to put me first. Like, I don't know Mm -hmm. if you watch TikTok. There's this thing where it's like, I got to put me first, Lucian. I got to put me first. I think that's so key. (laughs) Like, you have to put you first, especially in the corporate world. And I know this is very, very black and white. Mm -hmm. And it does come from a place of privilege because I do have financial support within my family. But corporations and companies, they will let you go without a care in the world and move on, like, real Mm -hmm. quick. You know, at the end of the day, our happiness, our joy is so critical, our our existence. It's not working, you know, nine to five and putting up with things that really at the end of the day, if you're waking up every single day and you're like, I don't want to, or I don't want to open my computer, I don't want to go into work. And especially if that's rooted in, I don't feel comfortable in this Mm -hmm. space. And, you know, I grew up in all white spaces. I grew up where even to this day, when I wear my natural hair, there's a thought in the back of my head where I'm just like, I feel nervous. Like, am Mm -hmm. I as beautiful when I'm wearing my natural hair than when I have like my locks in or whatever it might be? Because I also wear full locks for those who can't see me, which is everyone listening. But (laughs) even right now I have a head wrap on my head. And I remember very distinctly working at a company, the elevator doors opened and down the hallway, this white guy who I've always had a, a good, you know, rapport with. I know he didn't mean anything by it, but from down the hallway, he yells, what is that? And I was like, what is what? He was like, on your head. And then comes and like grabs Mm -hmm. like the top of like the the bun of the head wrap. He's like, interesting. Like, I've never seen that before. And I'm just like standing there like, yo, first of all, get your hands off me. Mm -hmm. And second of all, it's the reason why I moved from San Francisco to Oakland. I was tired of things that are so common and natural in my culture to have curly hair, to wear head wraps, like to see multiple women have locks and they know the difference between if you got faux locks in or goddess braids or whatever it might be. And you're just like, okay, I belong here. I belong, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that's so much rooted in my happiness is one, I have to go through a journey of like my own identity. Mm -hmm. And then when you go into a workspace or even if it's a friendship group and you realize your identity isn't all that accepted or known about, or you're experiencing whatever it might be, you got to get out of it. You got to get out of there because it's not conducive to your joy. So yeah, I just think that's so critical because of things that I've gone through. And then also my mama, 
my mom has always said to me growing mm. up, when I would get an attitude or when I would talk back, she's like, you're not about to steal my joy. So that's <laughs> like, uh-uh, you're not about to steal my joy with da-da-da-da-da. And she'd be like, you keeping that over there, you're not stealing my joy. And so that's really where like protect your joy for me came from because, you know, mental health and, you know, your life is so important and you got to put you first. So if you're somewhere, if you're in a situation, if you're in an environment where every day you're waking up and you're not experiencing joy, first you need to identify what is your joy. And if you're not experiencing that, it's time to go. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that, Alicia. And, you know, in a lot of the spaces and places that you described, you described yourself as the only or one of just a couple people who reminded you of yourself, you know, who identified with the communities that you identify with. And I don't know if we've ever talked about this. My eldest daughter has alopecia, so Mm -hmm. she doesn't have any hair. It's an autoimmune Mm -hmm. disorder that caused her to lose all of her hair. And girlfriend rocks a bald head to school Mm -hmm. every day. She could wear a wig. She could wear a hat. She doesn't want to. And I remember when she was five, Alicia, so you can imagine this kid getting stared at everywhere she goes because there is no one who looks like her in her entire life she's almost 13 now she has seen one other kid in person Mm. with alopecia Mm. and when she was five she said to me like some kid had said something to her on the playground and she said I want to feel good in my own skin I deserve Mm. to feel good Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I said Yes, you do. Mm -hmm. And I just, I think about her a lot in our work with Breakline too, this sort of perverse experience that a lot of folks that we work with have, because a lot of them are the first or one of the few. Mm -hmm. And they describe that I don't look like the majority in this space. And that's a burden going in. But then there's also this additional burden where I need to also make the majority of people feel comfortable with me, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I was just sort of wondering about that interaction with the guy who grabbed your hair. Like he had no business touching you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and entering into your space. But I like, I just kind of think about how we burden other people with both like, you got to try hard to fit in, even when that's sometimes impossible. And then you also need to make other people feel comfortable rather than the other way around. Yeah. And that's the part that I have gotten to the place where I challenge. I no longer try to make other people feel comfortable. Yeah. And that's part of me protecting my joy. And I am very I don't even like using the word blunt because I think blunt has a negative connotation to it because if you're really saying what something is, then it's like, whoa, no, Mm -hmm. I'm going to say what it really is. And I am not in the business of protecting white fragility. Mm -hmm. I'm not in the business of making someone feel comfortable about their own lack of knowledge, ignorance, bigotry, whatever it might be. That's for you to work through. And I'm going to tell you right here now, like, Mm -hmm. and that's what something I had to work through again, growing up in all white spaces. And I felt that when you said your daughter said she wants to feel comfortable in her own skin, it took me like 30 years to start to feel comfortable in my own skin. You know, I will say when I came out to my sister as a queer woman, 
she later shared with me her concern for me wasn't that I was queer. She's like, I don't care. I don't care who you mm-hmm. date. I don't care who you love. She was like, I had to go on a walk because I was worried about you because you're already a woman. You are a black woman. And now you are adding the fact that you are queer. And she was mm-hmm. like, and I just worry about you in this world and in this career of how much harder it's going to be for you. Mm-hmm. And you know, when she said that to me, I was already in a space where it was just like, it ain't gonna be harder for me because I'm at the place now where I'm going to get out of a situation. I'm going to call things for what it is. Yes. I'm going to be very clear and honest about where we're at, where somebody's at, how you can learn X, Y, and Z. I will yes. put you on to so many books, but then at the same time, be like, you're not going to learn on the back of me or run me my money if you want to. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. like, I was already at that space where so many people aren't there yet. And it is a continuous mm-hmm. practice. You know, when you fear that your job is going to be at risk, it's like, let's unpack that. Like if yeah. you fear your job is going to be at risk for telling your manager about mm-hmm. an experience you've had or for telling your manager you don't feel comfortable working in this space, then let's look at LinkedIn and see what other places we can get you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like, that's something to really unpack. And you mentioned, you know, when I was sharing my story, you mentioned like the grittiness that I had to yeah. have. And I think my dad instilled a lot of that in me because he mm-hmm. never gave me the answers to anything. I would ask like a very simple question of like, Hey dad, how much is a burger at McDonald's? He was like, well, I don't know. Maybe you should go to McDonald's and ask. And I'm just like, can you just give me the, I know, you know, the answer. Just give me the answer. <laughs> um, and that would get on my nerves. And I was, I was like, Dad, I know you have. Just tell me. Um, and he'd be like, well, you got a phone. Look it up. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, it was like, oh, you want this? That's cool. Figure out how to get it. And so that has always been my way of thinking where I don't accept no in certain mm-hmm. spaces when it's like, especially when it's something I'm like very, very passionate about. Sometimes I'll hear, oh, it's a not right now. Or it's a, okay, I need to figure out a way to get you to understand what it is I'm saying. So I'm going to go about it another way. And I'm going to keep trying different ways to get what I want and what I think is necessary and needed. Before I enter into a situation, I make sure that I'm right. (laughs) or I make Mm -hmm. sure that I got the data or I got whatever to support it. And I did. And it's like, you got to be gritty. You have to go after it because you're going to find yourself in places, especially if you're a part of a marginalized group that don't want you to succeed. And you have to be like, no, I'm going to. And it's going to be a harder route, but you got to be gritty about it. And then find Mm. those allies. Oh, I love this so much. And like the thing I keep thinking about with you, like you evolving into this space in your life where you're asking for what you deserve, you're insisting mm-hmm. upon what you deserve, you including every day to protect your joy. Mm-hmm. You've evolved into the fullest expression of yourself. And in doing so, you're a gift to your community and a mm-hmm. gift to the world. And you're sharing stories and insights and wisdom that so many other people can benefit from. Mm-hmm. And I think about like, what if you had stayed in the box, you know, like or given up yeah, or given up and how much worse we would all be, not just you, but everyone yeah. who now has the opportunity to learn from you. And it's so obvious to me that 
what we need to be doing is encouraging each other to grow into that fullest mm, expression mm-hmm. of who we are mm-hmm. instead of like, hey, stay in this box because that's mm-hmm. where I feel comfortable with you. Right. I also say too, like in growing into this space, whether it's like, you know, I'm working on myself to get really comfortable with myself or to be my authentic self or mm-hmm. I'm working at X, Y, and Z. Another thing I always say, there's protect your joy, but there's also give yourself grace. Yeah. And so this is going to be a journey. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had on the phone calling my dad just crying. Yeah. You know, I can't tell you how many job interviews I've had knowing how amazing I am, knowing what I could bring to a company. I can't tell you how many situations within a job that I've had where I've just called my dad so many times. I've called friends or family just crying or, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really, really close to my aunt as well or my mom. And I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know mm-hmm. how to get out of this. Like mm-hmm. I've had some very dark days solely based off of my career mm-hmm. and or my job that I was at. And I told myself never again, never mm-hmm. again will I cry over a job or how someone treats me mm-hmm. just in life or within a job. Never mm-hmm. again. Like you know, like, and mm-hmm. so I had to get to a space of, I've picked myself up so many times. My dad Mm -hmm. says I'm the most resilient person he knows. Mm -hmm. But if I can provide some nuggets, some wisdom, some guidance, so someone doesn't have to consistently be resilient because that it is time. It is time to your entire life being resilient. If I can give some nuggets to help someone not have to deal with X, Y, and Z or know how to get out of that box in that situation a whole lot sooner, then Mm -hmm. that's what I'm going to do. Because at the end of the day, what I really am passionate about are people mm-hmm. and I want everybody to get theirs and I want everybody to be happy. So yeah, that's my journey and my mission. And the tech industry is not, you know, you don't see as many people who look like me and with my identities. And there's always so many times like, we're just trying to get butts and seats. And you look at like the head counter, like all white people, like mm-hmm. you need to tell me this was the best, like out of, you've interviewed everyone and this is the best talent. Uh, that's cap. I don't believe that. And so it's like, no, we're opening doors and creating spaces for, you know, these underrepresented groups and people who, have too many times been put in a box, but are actually like magic and deserve to. (laughs) Well, what strikes me too is sometimes in the discourse about creating a diverse team and a diverse company, there's an implied trade-off, you Mm, know, like mm, I got to give something up in order to get this thing. And Mm. in my experience, it's all a win. Everyone it's all wins. wins. Yeah. I mean, not just really quick, like not getting political here, but when thinking about how Biden said he's going to elect or appoint the first black woman to the Supreme Court and everyone's like, oh my goodness, like, no, we should get qualified people and da 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 as if like a black woman isn't qualified. And let's look at the history of who sat on the Supreme Court and you were going to sit here and tell me that all those people are qualified. But that's another conversation for another time, it is. It's like there isn't a trade-off, you know? I straight up had a head of people tell me one time that the work I was doing, diversity and inclusion, is an elective. She was a white woman. I was like, well, that's fun to know that, like, me and things that benefit people who look like me and in my community is an elective to you. But for the rest of us, it's not elective. This is our life. And so 
you know, I was on a panel last week speaking about like ERGs and things like that. And someone asked me, it's like, if I'm working at a company trying to get money for the ERGs, which try to stand up ERGs, but they're not giving it to me, should I look outside and get outside funding? And I said to them, that is something that you have to gauge. If your company is like, not really about it and not and it doesn't seem like they're ever going to really care about DEI. Don't let them put DEI on your back to figure it out. So Alicia, you described an interaction as a microaggression. Yeah. And I've always been sort of befuddled by that terminology. If somebody says something hurtful or does something hurtful, it's just an aggression. It's you an know, aggression. Like, why do we minimize it with this micro qualifier? I hear you on that. And I get that as well as I think where micro comes from, and maybe it needs to be a different term, but it's, I guess it's called a microaggression because the person who's doing the aggression doesn't necessarily realize what it is that they're doing, whether it be ignorance, well, because of ignorance and its lack of knowledge of the culture, the person, the what the terminology, whatever it might be. And so for them, even though they're not the receiver on it, it's not a lot of times it's not an intentional aggression. Yeah. So I think that's why mm-hmm. it's deemed a microaggression. Although to the receiver, this isn't something that's small. So I would like to do some research on that and see if the term was coined to protect fragility, protecting, in a sense, like the aggressor, because they don't necessarily know that they are being aggressive, or they are doing something offensive. I wonder if that's true, if they were trying to make it less threatening, in a sense, by minimizing how it feels to be on Mm -hmm. the receiving end. Mm -hmm. But in doing so, I've actually heard people poo-poo microaggressions, like make fun of the term. And I think that it's an area where we should just take up space, you know, and 1000%. This is unacceptable. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Because, you know, especially in a corporate space, when they, you know, when people hear microaggression, it's not taken as seriously. If you go to like a manager, and it was like, someone discriminated against me, it'd be like, Oh, my God, let's do an investigation. But in my experience, it's like you go like, you know, these microaggressions I'm experiencing. It's like, well, it's all in how you react to it and try, you know, it's like, and normally, you know, the normally the managers are Mm. the majority are part of the majority. And so to them, it's just, it's like, well, you know, try to ignore it. Or, you know, have you talked to that person? Or, you know, it's like on you to figure out where if yeah. I were to go to a manager and be like, someone said a racial slur to me, it would be like, right. oh my God, you know, which is interesting. Have you ever seen that show, Naked and Afraid? Yes, I have. Seen- <laughs> I <laughs> that have. One where- <laughs> so for people who haven't seen this, it tends to be a pair of people. It's often a man and a woman mm-hmm. and they go out into the wilderness completely nude. <laughs> and they're supposed to survive for three weeks just based on what they can find. And my ultimate nightmare with this show, Alicia, is when they go into the jungle areas and they uh-huh. get attacked by mosquitoes all the bugs. and yeah. yeah, all the bugs. And when I, <laughs> I'm bringing this full circle <laughs> because the founder of, do you remember that cosmetics company, The Body Shop? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember. It mm-hmm. was like kind of organic cosmetics, maybe in the 90s or something. Anyway, she wrote a book, and I don't remember much from the book, except for one statement where she was saying, if you feel too small to make an impact, imagine a mosquito in a tent. And I was thinking about it with microaggressions, because when you're on the receiving end of that stuff, yeah, like one offhanded comment every five years, who cares? Right. But when it's over and over and over and over and over again in one day, you know, mm-hmm. in your workplace where we're all entitled to feel safe and secure, that shit lands hard. It and, lands. Yeah. And it's rooted, I mean, and it's still all rooted in whatever the core intention of that microaggression is. So whether it's anti-blackness or homophobia or, you know, whatever it might be, it's still rooted in that. And so it's like, if you are experiencing something your entire life, you know, Mm -hmm. even as someone who often experienced microaggressions, sometimes it's like, do I want to engage with this? Do I have the energy Mm -hmm. to like educate someone? And it's just like, nah, I'm gonna keep it pushing. But then it's, you know, on the other end of that, Sometimes I'm like, no, they need to know because like mm-hmm. they're going to keep doing it and mm-hmm. do it to someone else and do it to someone else and do it to someone else. But it gets mm-hmm. exhausting. It gets tiring. Yeah. Like it, it shouldn't be the job of the oppressed to teach the oppressor. It's yeah. like it is interesting because of how often microaggressions happen. It is overlooked or downplayed sometimes yeah. because it's so a part of like our society. And it's like, Oh, you know what I meant by that? It's like, No, what did you mean? Or it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, when someone touches my hair, or whatever it might be, I'm just like, No, like, you don't get a pass because you don't have enough black friends. And you're just like, I'm just, you know, I didn't know about this. It's like, well, it's your Mm -hmm. job to educate yourself. So I truly believe that as well, that I think microaggressions should be taken just as seriously as like, you know, something that people instantly react to, like racism mm-hmm. or, you know, but it's still rooted in that. And so mm-hmm. it's like, just because you're ignorant doesn't mean I should have to put up with your lack of knowledge. Totally. Yeah. I was thinking about that story you told at that company and that company was, I think you said majority Chinese mm-hmm. and Mandarin speaking and they sort of intentionally shut you out of places and spaces where power and influence was located, Mm -hmm. you know, like meetings. And it reminded me of when I was at McKinsey, I worked for these two men and I knew it was trouble because the day I showed up, we were in a meeting around a table and one of them rolled his eyes at me. Mm -hmm. That's something that I said. Mm -hmm. And I went to McKinsey and I I had a full-blown case of imposter syndrome. Mm, Like I mm -hmm. just, I did not feel smart enough to be there. I didn't feel like I had the right status or the this or the that to be there. I was just already in sort of a fragile Mm -hmm. mental health place. Mm -hmm. And then to be actively demeaned Mm. and undermined by the people I was sitting next to and working with every single day, my self-confidence plummeted so dramatically that within three months, Alicia, I could barely do basic math. I was just like in a state of fraught anxiety all the time. And I wanted to quit McKinsey at that point. Mm -hmm. And 
I decided I couldn't leave in that state. Mm. Like I could not, I wanted to leave on my own terms and feel good about it. It took me a year to fight my way out of Mm. that state that I had allowed myself on some level to be put in. Yeah. And it took me a year to rebuild and to, you know, to be able to leave as a top performer there. And it was so fucking hard to do that. Like, When you're so worn down by people who want you to fail. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones and that empower too. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. And to, to have to kind of find a way to build back from that. How did you, and I'm not saying that those two situations were necessarily similar, but in those moments where like people are draining off your self-confidence or the situation mm-hmm. is draining off your self-confidence, how did you rebuild yourself? That is a good question. Again, I think it goes back to two things of like me learning how to protect my joy and just being resilient as fuck. And I don't know how I became this resilient. And yeah, I mean, there's a positive and negative to it. I'm at the point now where I'm just like, I'm exhausted. I'm tired of being resilient. But I think, honestly, it was my own self-work outside of work that did that because I had to you know I've always been someone to fake confidence like fake it until you make it like Mm -hmm. no one unless if you're like a good friend of mine or someone who like knows me knows me no one would know any of my insecurities unless I tell you them no one will know that you know I was raised in white suburbia in a very, very like Christian home. So, you know, black, young black girl who was queer. And it's like, you know, I didn't come out at that time. But in my 20s, that was a lot that I had to unpack. I had to unpack what society and my environment like put on me. And so I had to find a way to not only I had mastered exuding confidence and strength and everything like that on the outside, Mm -hmm. but I had to work on myself on the inside. So while Mm -hmm. I was finding my identities, finding my way back to just loving the skin I'm in, loving my hair, knowing that I'm that bitch, like knowing that (laughs) I am intelligent, knowing that my personality and that when people are around me and the work that I do, not only Do I kill it with work? But I bring everybody up around me. Totally. I had to work on myself and believe in my own self, in my own strength, and then really honestly become comfortable within myself and find joy within myself. And once I unlocked that, like nobody can tell me nothing. (laughs) Like, I don't Mm -hmm. care if you try, you can roll your eyes. Like, If I was, you know, Alicia, say going off of your scenario, if I was Alicia in my early and mid 20s and I was in that room, only black woman, you know, a bunch of white guys and a white, you know, dude rolled his eyes at something I said, I might have paused. I might have cowered a bit, what might have stayed silent and then had to unpack it later with all this anxiety and whatnot and let it break me down. Today, Alicia, let you roll your eyes at me. I will call you out in the middle of the room. You know, so I think honestly, at the core of it, it's like, yes, we can learn all of these 
tips and tricks to manage work environments. But I think really where it really starts is within yourself. And you mentioned imposter Mm -hmm. syndrome and that's still so real. It is so real. You know, Mm -hmm. I, for example, like my sister, she works for a really big name, amazing ad company and they came after her twice. Like they found her twice. And this company has always been a goal of her since she went back to grad school and went into advertising. And before that, she was working at another great agency here in San Francisco. And when they were interviewing her, she kept coming to me. Even when they offered her, she was like, when are they going to realize that like, she was like, I wonder if they just hired me because I'm pretty and I have a good personality. And I was like, absolutely not, Crystal. (laughs) Like, They hired you because of your years of experiences, the campaigns you've worked on and that, you know, like, you know, your stuff. That's why they hired you. And so even after getting her offer letter, she was still like fearful that they were going to discover that she's a fraud. And I'm like, Crystal, you are absolutely insane. And, you know, she's my older sister. And so here we are. You know, it happens a lot as women. We go through that imposter syndrome. And I think no matter what, there's going to be a smidge. I mean, still to this day, you know, I'm told certain things and I'm like, me? You want you want me to? You think I'm great? Or, you know, but then I'm just like, but it comes in my mind so quickly and then exits where it's like yeah. the imposter syndrome is like, no, you're right. I am great. Or no, you're right. I should have this role. I think that's one of the things it's like building up your own confidence and belief in yourself and not concerned about what's going on around you, not concerned about what people are going to say around you. Because once you truly break that down and realize you, like my mama said, you're not going to let nobody take your joy. Then you go into situations with a much different perspective and Mm. You know, I no longer allow the fear of like losing my job or losing a friendship control me. And so oftentimes it does, even when we're like negotiating, it's like, I don't want to mess up the offer. It's like, well, if they offered it to you, then that means they want you. And I promise you they have more money to give you. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. negotiate, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's first we got to work on ourselves yeah. And then that'll apply to every other parts of our life. But it was hard. I mean, I've got, like I said, I've gone through it. Like, I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. Like, yo, my 20s, <laughs> I've gone through it. I've gone through anxiety. I've gone through depression. I've been in very, very dark places. I've gone through being just beat down from, you know, white leaders and being the only in a lot of spaces just making me feel like I'm not enough. And then it just like light bulb switch. I was like, no, I am enough. I am enough. And it's mm-hmm. their loss. It is their loss. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to know. Now, like, you know, I've built myself up. It takes years. It's practice. And so yeah. I always say, give yourself grace. I tell this to you when I tell it to my friends. It's like, as you are learning, as you are working on yourself, if something gets to you, it's going to get to you. Allow it to get to you. But also recognize the beauty in you, recognize what you are doing, recognize the positive things that you are doing and that you can contribute. Mm -hmm. And then more and more that belief in yourself and that beauty will start to outweigh what you think you're not good enough for those negative thoughts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I love that story and totally agree with your point around the self-work. We have to start here. We have to start at home first in our own hearts and minds. The other thing that you mentioned, though, was that your sister called you. Uh, yeah. And we talk about that at Breakline so, where we need to, well, we need to be mirrors for mm, each other. Mm, you know, hold right, up right, the mirror, right. remind you of who you are. Yeah. I interviewed Amit Bendoff recently. He's the CEO of Gong. He's so cool. And he said, surround yourself with people who mm, believe in you. Mm. That is if you do that, so anything key. is possible. And that's what your sister did in that moment. She knew she could come to you yeah. <laughs> for the real truth and for the boost. And that's what you provided to her to remind yeah. her who she was. And so one of my like biggest suggestions around imposter syndrome and fear and anxiety, which we all fucking face, and it's mm-hmm. so exhausting, is make sure you've got a tight mm. kitchen cabinet, mm. you know, mm-hmm. people who you can turn to. And I was, That's while you so were sharing cute. that story, I was, I was looking at my text because I texted a friend of mine in the last week or so in a moment of imposter syndrome. And he wrote back, please believe in yourself as mm. much as everyone else believes mm. in you. Mm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm here for a pep talk anytime. We need those folks we, around us. We need those. And that's so key. I mean, that's why I moved out of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I was tired of experiencing these aggressions in work, out of work, going to restaurants, going to bars and looking up and seeing like, I'm the only in a space or one of few in like all of San Francisco. I was tired of, you know, walking down the street in San Francisco and being, that's another thing that I've stopped doing. Oftentimes when you're walking down the street, especially if you're walking by white men, they take up so much space on the Mm -hmm. sidewalk and they expect you to go out of your way to go around them. So whether you Mm -hmm. pausing and running into a wall or stepping into the gutter, they expect that for you to do that. And I mean, it's the predominantly, it's just like a white space in San Francisco. And I stopped Mm -hmm. doing that. I'm like, no, I'm Mm -hmm. going to take up space. You are going to see me. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've just come face to face with someone and then they're just like, oh, and I'm like, oh, where did you want me to go? Like, where right. did you, you know, there was one time I was crossing the street and I saw these three white women across the street and I was on the inside of the crosswalk. So there was cars right here next to me and I'm walking and I'm seeing this woman like walk right towards me, but she could have moved to the side because she was with like her friends. She could have you know, they could have scooted over. I couldn't have gone anywhere else because they were taking up so much space. When I tell you I did not move, I just kept walking straight. And then we ended up like shoulder checking each other. And then this girl turns around. She was like, oh my God. And I was like, where the hell did you want me to go? Did you want me to jump up on the car? Like, and the thing is, they don't expect you to say anything back. They don't expect you Mm -hmm. to run into them. They don't. And it isn't until you do where they come out of their entitled bubble that now Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, now you're going to see me. Mm -hmm. And so I think, yes, I stopped doing that like in San Francisco, but moving to Oakland, I don't ever, I can't tell you the Mm -hmm. last time I've ran into somebody, you know, when I go to New York, I can't tell you the last time where I've like bumped in. I mean, you bump and it's like, oh, my bad. You're going to bump into people, but I don't Mm -hmm. feel like it's a 
standard. It's just the sense of that sense of entitlement. And so when mm-hmm. you have to get yourself out of those situations where you're continuously just being just hammered, 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 and then surround yourself with people, like you said, that empower you that I mean, I can't tell you how many times out here I've gone to like a store or gone to FedEx or gone to get coffee. And it's like, hey, sis, people talk to you. And it's just like, oh, my God, like today I was at a cafe, ordered coffee. And the guy was like, I love your shoes. Like, I don't know. It's just it's a different community and it's a different way of building you up. And I bring up New York because I was in New York for a month and I want to move there. You know, the amount of people just saying just compliments with no other intention besides to let you know, like you look good or you're great or da da da. And it's not like they're hitting on you or being awkward. It's different. You walk differently. You walk more comfortable in spaces that you feel like you belong. And so it's like, find those spaces that you belong. Find that, you know, people always say at work, find your allies, find those allies. Yeah. Find an ally. So like when you're in a meeting that they'll speak up for you, but then Find your people because mm-hmm. you can take down your guard. You can be chill. You know, they're going to give it to you straight and you know, they're mm-hmm. also going to uplift and empower you. So, yes. you know, it is so major key, not only in corporate environment. I mean, like I said, in my twenties, I had a whole new, I got rid of a whole friend group because I was just like, mm-hmm. this isn't it. Like, first of all, y'all all talk about each other. No one is lifting each other up. I'm also the only black person. And then once I found my people, man, it is a whole nother world. The, like mm-hmm. you said, the amount of text messages or it's like, Hey, I'm really nervous. And it's like, they remind you who you are. And it's like, you got yes. this. And it's so important. It is so important. It is so vital to find those people inside and outside of work. And so again, I go back to like protecting your joy. There's so much that Mm -hmm. goes into that. It's not allowing certain people to take your joy, surrounding yourself with people who are going to contribute to that joy and who want your joy, who want you a part of their life as well. Yes. Yes. There's so, so much goodness in what you just said. And I was thinking about when you were talking about the, just your effort to be seen on a sidewalk as you're minding your own business and just the whole idea of spatial awareness. And at Breakline, we haven't been able to do it as much in remotely during COVID, but before COVID, I would always make a point to sit spread eagle in a Mm. work chair. (laughs) And dudes do it all the the time. (laughs) The dudes could fucking laugh their asses off. Because they'd be like, this is so weird. It's so weird to see a woman sitting like like that. Or like if you're on the subway or BART, like (laughs) I'm going to sit big. I'm taking up so much space. Y'all take up space. Spread eagle. Spread eagle. And and like when you sit like that, you're communicating a bunch of things about yourself. Like A, that the space belongs to you. Yeah. You know, and B, that you don't give a shit. Right. That people are looking at you sitting (laughs) eagle. Like I literally... Also, in talking to you, it's like those little moments too. Like, how did that make you feel? That made you feel empowered. That made you feel like, oh, y'all go see me today. That made you be like, I deserve to be here. So it's like, again, it kind of goes back to like, fake it till you make it as well. It's like, there's little things you can do. Like, think about those things that make you feel like a boss or make you feel good or make you feel empowered, make you feel confident. 
and do those things. So if do those things yeah, for yourself, do it for Absolutely. yourself. And then people are going to start to recognize. And it's just like, yeah, if you sit spread eagle in a meeting and you're like, yeah, mm-hmm, like I'm here, <laughs> I'm yeah. here. Like, so you can, how can you not feel like you are that bitch if you are sitting there like you can't like you can't feel bad about yourself if you're sitting in a meeting spread eagle like what's up taking up your space taking up your space like you can't have imposter syndrome and do that like no but and then your point about like the self-advocacy you know, yeah. in your own headspace, in your own, you know, the rituals that you have to get ready for your day. I told the Breakline community, even in COVID, I wear my perfume every day. Mm, mm-hmm. Not that anyone on any of these smell it. Is smell, <laughs> but I know. I that know. I'm ready. I feel yeah. it. I mean, you know, for me, and I might be snitching on myself to any medallions listening, but I have a block on my calendar mm-hmm. in the morning. So, like, Mm-hmm. Essentially, you cannot schedule a meeting with me before 930. Mm-hmm. And I do that for a reason. Because my life, my whole existence isn't to work. I am going to protect my joy. I'm going to yeah. wake up. I'm going to make coffee. I'm going to eat breakfast. I'm going to meditate. And I'm going to hop on my Peloton. Yesterday, I had such a good day. Why? Because I turned on a conto and, <laughs> and was on yes. my Peloton and, and then made some delicious coffee afterwards. Like, And then I was like, I'm ready. Let's go. Like, And that's yes. when you're going to get the best me is when I set 100%. out time to myself. Mm-hmm. I'm going to protect my joy. You will still get mm-hmm. the best work out of me. It's still going to get done and it's going to be excellent. Mm-hmm. So I just admire you so much for being fierce <laughs> about establishing the boundaries, Those knowing boundaries. that in doing so, you are able to show up as your best self. As my best self. Exactly. Yes. And I would love to see more people leaders and hiring managers thinking that way. Like, mm-hmm. how do I create the conditions for this person to thrive? To thrive. And I think with, you know, one of the things that did come out of this terrible pandemic was recognizing, well, a lot of people, they're still managers, it's still micromanager manage, but it's recognizing that people can do the work from other locations that people can do the work on a different time yeah. schedule that works yes. for them. It's still going to get done. A lot of companies are looking like, oh, wow, our productivity has actually shot up and yeah. we're making our numbers more than ever before. That's because people are like, they're in their space, they're in their element, they are allowed to, you know, work when, you know, you know, not everybody, but like their schedules, they can change the schedule up a bit. Like with Medallia, you know, our parents ERG really drove one of our initiatives yes. where parents and caregivers can have a certain amount of time in the day off to like pick up their kids or teach their kids, whatever it might be. Things like that matter. And then you still look, you're yeah. like, oh, sure, they took a chunk of time out in the middle of the day, but it's still getting done, you know? So mm-hmm. it's like, if you want to hold on to your employees and that's why we are in the great reten- or yeah, great resignation right now, because everyone's realizing like, I'm not going to kill myself over work. And if my company doesn't care about me, then I'm out. And that's what it is. 
So that's a really interesting point because I was reading a report, I think it was from Ernst and Young, and it was about like top benefits. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't about money. Mm-mm. And it wasn't about the ping pong table mm. and the snacks. <laughs> no. Right. The first thing was ability to work remotely. Mm-hmm. And the second thing was schedule control. Schedule so control. So not do I actually have to get this thing done? Yeah, you have to get it done. But do it in the hours that make the most sense, sense. for you. Yeah. You know, when yeah. you're motivated, when you are high energy. I mean, I absolutely adore Lauren Jackman. Shout out to LJ, she is amazing, the SVP of the DIB team. I, you know, I said to her, I was like, you know, I need to make sure I set time. And she's like, yeah, go ahead, block off your schedule. And I let her know, I was like, I am not a morning person. And she's like, that's okay. Neither am I. And I was like, you know, and she's like, over time, she's like, yeah, I see you online at like 7 p.m. And, you know, and I do that because I might log off because I'm like, I can't right now. I can't stare at this screen. I need to stand up off of this couch because I live in a studio apartment. I don't even have a desk. I work from my couch. And so I'm like, I can't. I'm a log off. And then I'll log back in and get the work done. And so that's my own time. Like no one's expecting me to work at like seven, eight o'clock at night. But I make that conscious decision because I know I'm usually slower in the morning and I can get more done after like two or whatnot. And so not to say if anyone in Modali is listening, I do start work before uh-huh. two o'clock. I promise you. <laughs> I start around nine thirty, okay, if Mary Ainsworth is listening, I do I start work early. No, but It is one of those things where she allowed me, one, she understood who I was and she understands that you can't coach and lead everyone in the same way because there's different learners. People have different ways of doing things. Some people are a little slower on doing things and other people are like, we need a calendar and a sauna and this and this for everything. And I need it to be exactly perfect. Some people are like, I wake up at 530 and start my day and I'm over here like, ew, absolutely not. No, (laughs) but I know, I know myself and Lauren Jackman allows her team to operate during the time and how that is their, like, is their best. And our team is like very high performing. We get all of our stuff done. Lauren Jackman always says we're a team full of killers because we kill it. We kill it. We do. And I think a large part of Mm -hmm. that is her leadership. And so for me, coming into it, you know, because of the past terrible leaders I've had, I've had my guard up and I came in knowing exactly what I was going to say and demand and be like, I need to block on my calendar at this time. I need to do it this time. This is how it worked, da, da, da. And then see if it's received. If it wasn't received, then I would have been like, well, let me work through this with the manager. If it doesn't work out, then I guess I'll start searching for jobs again. But that's what I say, like in the interview process, before you get in somewhere, let it be known, like interview them, ask your manager, what is their style? I am 33 now. I've been at Medallia for a year and a half. June is my two years. And I'm only now starting to find, or I only just now Mm -hmm. found my place. And somewhere where I'm going to be here a while, a place where I know I have impact and a manager who is a unicorn. That didn't happen overnight. That didn't, you know, I can't tell you how many times I was unemployed. I can't tell you how many times I cried in my room. I can't tell you how much shit that I've been through in my career. But what I did do is I made Mm -hmm. stuff happen for myself. I 
events, went to so many events. I networked my ass off. I put on events. I got emails. I was out there, like, you know, sending out my resume to everyone. And you know how I got the job at Medallia or knew about the job? I'm a part of Diversity Advocates, which is a group, a forum of everyone who wants to be in the space, in the tech industry. There's so much goodness in there. But Michael Kyle texted me and he was like, do you know who Lauren Jackman is? I was like, I don't know her personally, but I have talked to her in, over email and I went to an event and I met her. He was like, well, Lauren Jackman just posted in Diversity Advocates about this role at Medallia. Do you want me to connect you? I was like, absolutely. Connect me an email. Yep. That's how I got the interview. I didn't get it through just applying online. I got it because of the work and the seeds that I've planted over the years. So no... I mean, for some people, you might get lucky and be like, I'm done. I'm out. Apply. Got the job. But it normally doesn't work like that. You have to start to find ways to get yourself out of the situation you're in. And while you're finding those ways, that'll take your mind a little bit off of the stress, the anxiety, and the things that you're feeling about work because you know you are working on something greater and more beautiful that that is in your future. Mm. So appreciate that perspective. One of the most important insights I ever gained about my career and my path and what was available to me is it's under my control at all times. It might take Mm -hmm. me rolling up my sleeves. It might take me putting the shoulder to the grindstone. It might take me getting some interim no's to get to the yes, but I can create Mm -hmm. the change that I want in my life. And I love that you created the change that you wanted in in your life. I love that you're in a place and on a team that fully appreciates you and where you're fully seen and can show up as your best self, because that's a gift to all of us too. And I just want to thank you Mm. for coming. Thank you for sharing your story. It's such a treat to spend time. No, thank you for having me. I mean, any time... I see you pop up in my inbox. I might ignore all the other emails. Same. But yours, absolutely Same. Not. <laughs> I'm like, that's not <laughs> Well, this has been such a treat. Thank you so much, Alicia. I hope you have Thank a great weekend. So I can't much. wait to share a conversation with our community. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Have the most amazing weekend. And I'm sure I'll talk, talk to you soon. soon. Thank you. Bye. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.